You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 46, Blood Mountain. Meredith Emerson was hiking up Georgia's beautiful Blood Mountain, inhaling the fresh air with each step. And she was getting a solid sweat going. And this was exactly what she needed to clear her head. She was on her own, but she wasn't by herself. Ella, her trusty black Labrador retriever mix, was steadfast by her side. Meredith was 24 years old and really excited about her future. After graduating college, she'd gotten a job as a salesperson for a corporation. She was well-loved by her family and friends. Life was good for Meredith, but it wasn't perfect. She was trying not to think about last night's squabble with her boyfriend, the one that had carried over into the morning. But on this day, January 1st, 2008, New Year's Day, Meredith wanted to focus on the future, not dwell on the argument that she'd gotten into with her boyfriend the night before when they had attended a fireworks display. He had gone to a fireworks celebration, I believe at Stone Mountain, Georgia, the night before, uh, where she and her boyfriend at the time had gotten into a little bit of an argument. And uh, they had planned on doing something on New Year's Day together. But I believe due to the argument, she just decided she was just going to go hiking alone with her dog. And it wasn't unusual for her to do that. She was a, you know, outgoing, very vibrant young lady that's clay you can just call me clay um my name's clay bridges i'm a retired assistant special agent in charge of the georgia bureau of investigation i retired in 2020 so you can just refer to me as special agent bridges or clay either way you'll hear from clay throughout the podcast meredith was the type of person to communicate to those close to her exactly what she was up to which meant the morning that she left for Blood Mountain, she wrote a quick note to her roommate, saying essentially she was off for a hike. But as far as her boyfriend was concerned, she was done with the arguing that morning. Whatever they needed to work out would have to wait. She was looking for peace on New Year's Day and didn't want to continue dwelling on an unresolved disagreement. The morning she had gone hiking, and that's why she had turned the phone off because she didn't, just didn't want to argue anymore. The Cubbies and Meredith's white Chevy were stuffed with maps of the local trails she'd already traversed or the ones she had on her agenda. Blood Mountain was roughly an hour away from where Meredith lived in a suburb of Atlanta. And it was a great spot because it was extremely rural, while at the same time it was really popular because it connected to the Appalachian Trail. And people from all over Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, and beyond visited those trails. 
That New Year's Day was chilly when Meredith parked her car in the parking lot, and then she and her dog Ella bounded up the trail together. Meredith was prepared, as she always was, wearing a fanny pack that held two water bottles on her hips. She had gloves, a leash, and treats for her dog. As the pair hiked up the trail, everything went like clockwork. Until it didn't. Actually, nobody really knew that she hadn't come home that night because she had left the note the day before, and I believe her roommate had been gone all night the night of the first. Uh, so when she comes home, she thinks that she's probably in her bedroom still asleep. Meredith's boyfriend hadn't given up on calling her, but every time he did, it instantly went to voicemail, which didn't raise alarm bells for him because they still had that unresolved tiff. But when Meredith didn't show up for her scheduled shift at work, her roommate was contacted by a fellow employee who was worried about her. Meredith fails to show up for work, so her work starts calling looking for her because it's very unlike her not to show up for work and not call in. Everyone close to Meredith was on high alert. They knew this wasn't like her. She wasn't the type of person to leave a note saying she was going for a hike and then never come home. So very quickly, friends got together and began looking for her. Basically, her friends and some of her family and her boyfriend began looking for her. And he knew where she, where she frequented, that she liked to hike. And the, I believe the second place he checked, he found her car. And this was on the 2nd, January the 2nd. The boyfriend would leave a sticky note on the window of Meredith's car. The note was a frantic scrawl that said, Don't leave. I'll be back. He wrote that just in case she showed up at her car. In the meantime, a missing persons report had been filed. And right away, the local sheriff's office for Union County was on the scene. Given that Meredith's car was found at the base of the trail, the most likely scenario was that she had either gotten turned around or she twisted an ankle and needed help getting off the mountain, which wasn't uncommon. The situation was urgent though, because a cold front had moved in. Temperatures had plummeted below freezing. The mountain was a great place to hike, but it was also very treacherous, especially if you're injured and alone. So they assumed that she had spent the night on the mountain, um, which in January, early January, it would have been pretty cold. So they were concerned about her uh, in that sense and basically began searching, began search parties, helicopters, those type things. So as the searches are taking place, friends and family are interviewed, and pretty quickly the story started to spread about a missing hiker. And a grocery clerk would come forward with some disturbing information. And the clerk at the store remembered that somebody had brought some items in the day before and said that it looked suspicious, but didn't contact anybody, just left them at the store in case somebody came looking for them. And basically what they had left was a police-style baton, which is kind of unusual for anybody to have. Uh, it's an expandable baton and a dog leash, some water bottles, and uh, some dog treats. So when all the first responders were in the area and everything else, it became something that they thought, well, maybe we ought to report this. So they, they gave those to the sheriff's department. Investigators would find out that the man who had brought those items into the store was actually a former law enforcement person. His name was Seth Blankenship. Apparently he lived in Florida 
He explained to the clerk that not only had he found those items, but judging by the dirt on the trail, it appeared that there could have been a scuffle where he had found the items. He had left his phone number and, and basically gave it to them and said, if here's, here's these items, it kind of looked bad, like something might have happened and shared some concerns with the store clerk there at the time, but basically said, if something happens or if something had happened, here's my contact information. Meredith's friends were shown the items, the dog leash, treats, the water bottles. All of it looked like it belonged to Meredith, but not the police baton. So investigators are trying to piece together the events that led up to Meredith's disappearance. There were a lot of people searching for Meredith, and they were coming up empty, except for those items that the hiker had brought to the store. And the thing is, Meredith's boyfriend was acting strange. At least the sheriff's office believed so. They believed the presence of that police baton near what had been described by the former law enforcement hiker as a potential scuffle spot. Well, it was disconcerting. Add to that, they learned that Meredith's boyfriend worked for the fire marshal. They started to wonder, could that police baton belong to him? Relayed to me that, you know, this guy's a fire marshal. We found a police-style baton. I don't know if they issue those or if he has one on his own or what, but... And initially, and first things that come to mind in, in, in any kind of missing person slash possible kidnapping, homicide, anything like that, you initially think it's definitely going to be somebody that knows them. It's very rare that anybody is taken or, or killed or anything that's not has some sort of relationship with the offender. The Union County Sheriff's Office contacted the GBI to assist with the investigation Wednesday night, January 2nd. We were called by the Union County Sheriff's Office to assist with the investigation. And it was reported to me that it's beginning to snow up here on the mountain, so we're going to call off the search for tonight, but we're going to need your guys' assistance. And and like I said, their, their initial suspicions were that possibly we may have, this guy may have done something, her boyfriend may have done something to her, uh, and they requested our assistance in looking at it. The GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, is the investigative arm of the state police, basically. So we are requested by local agencies to assist in more difficult investigations. When Clay arrived at Blood Mountain the morning of January 3rd, the plan was for him to assist with the interview of the boyfriend. But he was shocked when he rolled up to the scene. The place was crawling with media. I arrived up around the area known as Blood Mountain about 9.30 that morning. And Upon arriving up there, I was immediately greeted with a ton of news media, which was kind of surprising to me. But later I learned that her roommate was a media liaison for a, for a large arena. And basically, we tried to locate them away from it at a, at a state park just down the road. But immediately I went ahead and called back and requested more agents because we were going to have a large contingency to deal with. The media will play an important role in this case, but at the time, Clay didn't see it that way. I'm sure you're going to capable and you were going to give it your all no matter what, but then seeing the legion of the media and the camera and the spotlight, it had to be like, oh, this is going to be big. Well, it, it wasn't the, it wasn't the fact that it was going to be big. Our, our initial response is <laughs> it's going to turn into a circus. You know, we're going to have all kind of people crawling all over the place up here. It's not going to be difficult to do what we need to do to find out what we need to find out. 
And I think law enforcement in general, you know, are a little bit apprehensive about the news media becoming involved right off the bat because it hin- it kind of hinders us in a way. You know, they're constantly wanting to know what's going on, and rightfully so. But at the same time, it puts things out there which can hinder the investigation, if that makes any sense. Um, of course, and you don't you know don't what you're dealing with. Right. Ultimately, in this situation, it was the best thing that could have happened, to be honest. The fact that there was so much news media there, it was honestly the best thing that could have possibly happened. Bet you weren't expecting him to say that. We'll get to the why of it in a bit. But for now, Clay says they immediately started setting up tip lines, prioritizing leads as they came in. They still weren't jumping to any conclusions. What was your feeling? Like, was it impossible that she was still on the mountain or were you still thinking she could be in some gully that nobody had seen? Or were you pretty confident based on the baton and the dog leash and the water bottles that she's probably not even here anymore? She was taken. Like, at what point? It, it Generally, what what we're trained to do and what I've what I've tried to do my entire career was maintain every option and follow what the leads tell us and follow what the evidence we find tells us. Right away, they began talking to Meredith's boyfriend. Remember, Clay described his position working for the fire marshal as, quote, quasi-law enforcement. The fact that they'd found a police baton, that he and Meredith had gotten into a heated argument the night before, was something they needed to address. He was almost to the point of standoffish. I actually interviewed uh, the boyfriend myself initially, and I understood what what the local sheriff's deputies were saying, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of strange, something ain't right. And, and it was, it was more or less, I think him being distraught than necessarily strange, but at the same time, you have to consider, like I said, 90 to 93% of the time, it's going to be somebody that knows the person that has done something to them. And that was, that was in the back of my mind. Fortunately for Meredith's boyfriend, his phone logs and alibi put him nowhere near Blood Mountain on January 1st. It was fairly quickly that we were able to exclude him from being a possible suspect of anything. And at the same time, we're also digging into Meredith's background, uh, trying to figure out if she is the type of person that would just walk away from her life. Like, see if she was somebody that, you know, I'm not happy in my job. I'm not happy with this. I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk off and leave. You always have situations, you know, it could be a potential suicide. We've had people go up on the mountain and commit suicide. The GBI was also able to speak to that former law enforcement hiker from Florida, the one who'd found all the gear on the trail. As it would turn out, he didn't just see the stuff, but he'd also saw the man who had the police baton and the description did not match Meredith's boyfriend. And he knew who had had the baton. He actually didn't know who he was, just described him to us. Um, you know, mid-50s to early 60s, white male, missing, missing teeth and disheveled looking. And he recalled that he had duct tape on his shoes, which was, which was kind of odd. But he also had a lot of high-end hiking gear, uh, that type thing. And, and then he had a, either an Irish setter or a Labrador retriever some reddish-looking brown dog with him. He gave us that information. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. 
In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Investigators shared the description of the man with the media and the story of the missing hiker who could potentially have been kidnapped exploded. It wasn't long before the tip line erupted with other hikers who had seen this guy with his dog on the trail. I would say at least 20 people had said, hey, there was a strange guy up there that day. And they were all totally independent of one another saying the same thing. You know, there's there's this guy up here that was up there that looked awful sketchy. He was, you know, snarling with teeth that were broken and, and misplaced and yelling at his dog like he was, you know, very angry at his dog. He was yelling at his dog. There was four or five people that had given the same description. This guy had duct tape on his shoes. He looked really strange. You know, there was people that came forward that had, had recognized Meredith and said, this guy was hiking with her. And uh, it looked like she was actually trying to outpace him. Flooded with tips about this strange guy and having done a thorough investigation into Meredith's background... In the back of Clay's mind, he was still hoping for the best. However, learning about her through what's called a victimology report, basically background on the victim, he found himself worrying, in a way, about Meredith that he'd never done before. And his gut was telling him that this might not end well. When did your heart kind of sink after you were hearing the description of this guy? Because by this time, you'd looked into Meredith's life. And and from that interview that I watched with you, you seemed, I mean, you can't help but get connected to people. That's, that's yeah, that's most cases. Well, all cases that I have ever worked, homicides, kidnappings, all, you know, we're, we equate, and, and this is in no way callous or cold or anything. I We try to maintain the victim as an object more than a than a human you know because it will affect you it will it will a lot of people think that that law enforcement you know everything slides off their back and and you know they're they're bulletproof when it comes to stuff like that but you have to try and and disassociate a human being from being a victim and and try to no, I mean, it totally, I, I know exactly. I've talked to enough detectives where you have to have that veneer or else you couldn't right. do the job. I mean, it, it's a right. protection, it, especially if there's children involved. Right. And in this case, nobody deserves to be killed. Nobody deserves to be taken. Nobody deserves anything bad to happen to them. Meredith in no way had put herself in a, in a situation had no way been associated with anybody that would that would do that type of thing to anybody. And I think following doing what we refer to as a victimology, deep dive into the into Meredith Emerson, I think that I'm still curious to know if anything's happened to her. I don't I still don't at this point I still don't know that anything's happened to her other than she slipped off the trail and broke her ankle. But when we were b- becoming inundated with uh, this strange guy, you know, I started getting a little bit of a sick feeling that, you know, this may be something, you know, it may be bad. The investigation would turn on its head when a man named John Tabor 
called into the tip line. He said he knew the name of the man police were looking for, a former employee of his named Gary Hilton. We get a phone call from his former employer. You know, basically the description was a white male in his late 50s, early 60s, disheveled looking uh, with a red dog uh, driving a white van. We get a phone call from... forget the missing teeth. I mean... Well, we found out that he had pulled his, he had pulled his, he had broken his teeth and made them jagged looking with a pair of pliers so that people wouldn't, so that when he encounters people on, on hiking trails and things like that, he can just snarl at them and it kind of scares them off if, if anybody tries to bother him, bother him or anything like that. Do you so, believe that that's what, why he did that? Or is that some made up thing in his mind? Mm, I actually believe him. I, I actually believe that he actually uh, broke his teeth and and made them made them look jagged just to look scarier. Gary Hilton had worked for Tabor's Sighting Company as a telemarketer. In fact, the white van that he'd been seen driving around in was one that Tabor had actually bought for him. He even provided us with a tag number to the van, so he gave us an idea of him. We ran him immediately, pulled his driver's license photo sent it out to the media, and said, we really need to talk to this guy. Pretty quickly, they find out that there's an outstanding warrant for Gary Hilton, which had been initiated by the Forest Service for his failure to move an abandoned Chevy Astrovan that was registered in his name. Hilton had abandoned the vehicle at the end of a forest road at Georgia's Trey Mountain. Investigators had also discovered that Hilton had a history of having run-ins with the police, but they were mostly nuisance calls. He had had numerous run-ins in parks around Atlanta, you know, when he had his dog out there. Multiple times the police had been called on him and things like that. So he basically decided he would make himself look scarier so people wouldn't approach him and wouldn't wouldn't bother him. It's ironic because that's the thing that probably got him caught, is that his appearance, you know, he, what he looked like. He was, he was very recognizable. Correct. Correct. I mean, he was he was extremely physically fit. Especially for his age, he was uh, he was very athletic, and uh, he had a lot of, like I said, he had a lot of high-end camping and hiking gear that I'm not exactly sure where he had gotten it from because he was basically homeless. As the manhunt for Gary Hilton was underway, they believed that he had kidnapped Meredith Emerson, potentially holding her hostage. It had been three days, and they knew that if she still was alive, the time was running out. A maddening game of cat and mouse had begun. They had the make and model of Hilton's van, even the plate number. They had captured footage at multiple bank ATMs, where someone, disguising their features, had tried to pull money out of Meredith's account. And the tip line was on fire, with sightings of Hilton and his white van all over. But every time law enforcement showed up, they seemed to just miss him. But investigators would catch a break later that day, on January 3rd, the Thursday, GBI agents called John Tabor, Gary Hilton's boss, and told him that they would go to his place of business. They wanted to interview him in person. But before the agents got there, Hilton actually called his old boss. It was around 3 p.m., and he told him that he needed money. Tabor pretended to be sympathetic. He even told Hilton that he could get his job back. But when he got off the phone with Hilton... Tabor didn't call the GBI agents to let them know that he had just made contact. He calls Mr. Tabor, but 
you know, and Mr. Tabor has already called us to say, this is who you're looking for. But yeah, when he gets that phone call, we don't get a phone call that, Hey, he just called me from this number. And that, and that's not, I don't know if he thought, well, the agents will be here any second and I'll, I'll be able to, to give it to him then. But it's probably mm, maybe an hour, hour and a half, almost two hours later, the agents that are going to his location um, contact him and say, Hey, we're, we're getting close. Are you going to be around? We need to come talk to you. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm here. And he says, Oh, by the way, he called me about an hour ago. And so we get that phone number and, and it's from a huddle house in Marble Hill, Georgia, um, which is probably maybe 30 minutes from Blood Mountain. The Huddle House is a restaurant, and within minutes, investigators flocked to it. But by then, Hilton and his van were gone. And so was their chance of rescuing Meredith. The next day, on January 4th, a sharp-eyed patrol officer clocked a white van. By then, every law enforcement agency around the state knew about the missing hiker, who was believed to be abducted by an older man driving a white van of which they had the plates. State troopers local deputies and everything else looking for this van. But, of course, we're a little bit behind. Um, there were a couple of other instances to where another law enforcement officer actually meets him in the road on the 4th, and uh, he's responding to another call but knows that we're looking for a white van, actually checks the tag uh, as he goes by in his in his mirror and sees that there's a North Carolina tag on the van. So that's obviously not the one that we're looking for, and he continues on, but it actually was because he had switched his tag out to a North Carolina plate. Later that night, a tipster would call in, saying that they had spotted the man that police were looking for at a convenience store. The man called 911. Okay, I have 911. What's the exact location? I have the uh, the person of interest in the missing woman case is at this... uh, Chevron gas station on Ashford Dunwoody. Chevron gas station at Ashford Dunwoody? Yeah. You said the man is there? The van is here. The dog is here. The red dog. And I saw the man's face. And I've been watching the news, and I know it's him. I know it's him. He's got a green uh, sweatshirt, and he's wearing a hat, and he's emptying all this stuff out of his van. Pillows and a blanket, and it looks like he's got a sleeping bag right now. Taking it all to the trash. Um... It's definitely and the dumpster is looking the, around like he's as guilty as sin. Okay, sir, and the dumpster's at the rear of the location? Yeah, the dumpster, well, it's kind of right in the front. It's right by the car wash. Okay. I can go take him down if you want. No, sir, stay right there. Okay. Okay, hold on, sir. He looks like he's finishing up. You guys got to hurry. He's got stuff in bags that he's emptied onto the ground, and he's taking load by load. When police arrived at the convenience store, Gary Hilton was in the middle of cleaning out his van with bleach water. There were garbage bags strewn outside his van, and even more inside. They would take Hilton into custody without incident. But when they looked inside the van, they saw that the rear seatbelt had been cut out. Detectives would search the garbage bins at the convenience store. Inside, they would find blood-soaked clothing, 
that they believed belonged to Meredith. They also found a portion of a seatbelt with blood on it and Meredith's wallet with her driver's license and University of Georgia student ID card. Based on the amount of blood found on the clothing, it didn't seem likely that Meredith could have survived the injury. Suddenly, the hopes that a statewide rescue mission would have a positive outcome, that the young hiker they were all desperately looking for would be found alive, that possibility was looking less likely. On that same day, Ella, Meredith's black lab, would be found across the street from that convenience store by a passerby. Once in custody, Gary Hilton would immediately request an attorney. In the meantime, investigators continued to process his van. An analyst was specifically assigned to fast-track that evidence. One of the best things that could have happened in this case is our director at the time, Bernard Keenan, he actually assigned me a DNA analyst. And any other time that I'm working a homicide and I'm trying to get DNA, I'm in line with everybody else, so it's taken me six months to get DNA back, or it's taken eight months to get DNA back from, from the crime lab. In this situation, we had DNA on Friday afternoon on the 4th from the van, and we had the results back by Saturday and Sunday, uh, like two days. So we, we were getting turnaround on our DNA extremely quick, um, which was beneficial to us. But yet the case wound up going from his arrest on January 4th to his conviction on January 30th, I believe. I mean, that's unheard of. It's, it, it, everything went so fast for me and for other agents that worked on this case. I think it was just hard for us to process everything. So it was emotionally devastating. Initially, Gary Hilton refused to speak to investigators. But it wasn't long after DNA evidence came back that would link Meredith to Gary Hilton's van. And we could talk to the attorneys and we basically explained to them, we need you to explain to him, we've got him dead to rights on kidnapping with bodily injury. We had Meredith Emerson's blood in his van. So basically, and, the, and a lot of evidence that he was disposing of in the, in the dumpster when he was apprehended as well as where he had made a phone call from in Forsyth County. But ultimately, with explaining that to the attorneys, um, we told them that we would take the death penalty off the table if he would give us an act, a, a truthful account of everything that had taken place. Once the deal was in place, Gary Hilton held nothing back. Clay says that experience of listening to his confession was indescribable. He's trying to impress you with how he's planning on not getting caught. Like, what was that like for you? That's that's something I've never experienced. I've never met anybody who absolutely has zero remorse, but also, you know, thinks that I should be impressed by him. And he portrays that from the time I, I get to talk to him till the end. You know, I, I should I should really be impressed by the way he's handled his business. And he he describes it in such a way that it actually gives him enjoyment of describing it. You can tell from from the interviews that I did with him that he is uh, he's actually getting enjoyment by describing how how efficient he was and how how good he was at it and everything else. Gary Hilton couldn't hide his ego, his narcissism. 
In every story that he told, he seemed to put himself at the center of his very bizarre, nihilistic worldview. And, and the only reason I'm not rich is because I'm crazy. <laughs> well, there's downsides to everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't, in a sense, it sounds weird, but, but even at this point, I wouldn't trade it for being the average cognizant schmuck that's going and plodding along, doing a job, career, family, going to church, doing all those dumbass, mindless, brain-dead fucking things, man. I wouldn't trade it even now to be incognizant of, 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 of the average person, it, to be an, a sentient of, of, of the true reality of, of life. And it's all right there in front of us, but people have uh, the capacity to, not, to deny truths that are as big as the nose on their face. Hilton explained that he was disgusted by the people who claimed to be hikers, but were nothing more than posers. You, you ask 10, 10 people, oh, do you hike? Oh, yeah, hiking? Yeah, I hike. Well, let's go next Saturday. Well, no, I got a wine tasting next Saturday. Right? You know, that, that kind of stuff, right? In other words, when the pavement ends, they get nervous, <laughs> you know, basically. He showed his disgust for them by literally pulling out his own teeth. If you went to a dentist and said, uh, Doc, I want you to make my teeth as white as your lab coat there, the doc would say, well, I'll do it, but don't tell anyone it was me that did it. Because it looks so unnatural, you know what I mean? Now, everybody's that way, they're grinning, fucking idiots. I call it a dental display, is what I call it. It's like you, uh, chimpanzees and other apes, they do a genital display. You ever see a chimpanzee in a zoo logo like that? That's a genital display. Well, they do a dental human do a dental display. That's why I love my teeth. These are both artistic, philosophical statements, and they're practical, too. If someone is fucking with me, I go, you're pretty! This <laughs> gets shit out of any damn deal, they know I'm for fucking real. I ain't no yuppie. I mean, here's the yuppie's credo, okay? Number one is always remember that you can slum around with guys like Gary Hilton, but always remember they're not our kind of people. Number two, Never, ever be impressed by anything that anyone has done unless they got a whole lot more money than you do. Okay. That means if I go and climb Mount Everest, that means if I'm the super mega stud of studs, don't be impressed by me unless I have a whole lot more money than, than you do or than he does. And number three, don't ever let the people have a cut of the pie. <laughs> okay. Keep them down where they belong. Keep them wage late. Hilton's ranting monologues, one topic after another, would prove to be fruitful as they were psychological breadcrumbs for profilers to analyze. But Clay says his main objective was to find out what happened to Meredith on Blood Mountain. And he steered Hilton back in that direction, who told him that he'd used his golden retriever to get close to Meredith. Even though Meredith loved dogs, she was absolutely wary of the 61-year-old human. And it wasn't hard for her to drop this unwanted hiking partner. She gracefully maneuvered out of the situation by leaving him in the dust. He just couldn't keep up with her pace. She probably hoped that that would be the end of it. But this was just the beginning. How could she have known that he was a twisted predator who loved hunting human prey in the wilderness? But anyway, it's a good place to hunt in that you have a huge selection. But it's a bad place to hunt in that you collect a lot of people. people. So the way you would do it... So the way you would do it would be to lurk in a blind, so to speak, off the trail, observe with binoculars, and lurk. 
Hilton knew that at some point, Meredith would have to come back down the mountain, so he camouflaged himself within the forest, lying in wait until he heard Meredith and her dog coming down the mountain trail. Then he pounced, brandishing a military-style knife and a police baton, snarling those wicked-looking teeth as he demanded she hand over her ATM card. And what he didn't know was too full of himself to plan for was that Meredith had a black belt, and she wasn't going down without a fight. Basically, he produced the knife, told her, hey, move down to your car. I'm wanting your card and your PIN number, and that's it. And uh, she didn't hesitate. She basically grabbed the knife by the blade, uh, disarmed him, took the knife away from him, began fighting him. Um, he, he tried to pull out his baton. She disarmed him of that. And uh, basically, it was a, a fight for probably 10 minutes. During Hilton's confession, Clay would call out how close Meredith had come to besting Hilton, even though he had the element of surprise and weapons. Because as you said, uh, she almost went my ass. You said, I, didn't you say, I, I bet that 120 pound girl almost what you're at? She almost went my ass. She damn sure did. I lost control of both of them, uh, both the knife and the bat. Showed her the knife, grabbed the fucking, it's a bad answer, so it's dull shit anyway. All it is is a spike to stick with, you know, it's not a slasher. Grabbed the bayonet and somehow I lost control of the bayonet and, and lost it, period. And it went down. I pulled the bat and deployed it. Grab that! I mean, it was not my finest hour. It, it was not my, I, I mean, I'm better than that. I am, but I, I found out she was a fucking black belt. Hilton would get the upper hand when he landed a punch to Meredith's nose so hard he broke his hand. When he first got apprehended and carried to GBI headquarters and I went down and, and tried to, attempted to interview him at that point, um, I noticed that he had multiple bruises, multiple defensive wounds. Uh, he had a gouge mark in his nose that almost required stitches. I mean, he, she had taken her fingernail and basically tried to rip his nose off, I think. But he, uh, he, he looked worse for the wear. He had a broken hand. Um, there was there were several injuries to him. So in an effort to try and get him to talk, I actually made a statement to him that I bet that little 120 pound girl nearly whipped your ass. And and he he he, he kind of looked at me, but he didn't he didn't want to talk. Later, he told me that uh, yeah, she almost got it. She almost got the best of it. Even with a broken nose, Meredith continued to fight, up until the point that he threatened her with a gun. He only gained control of her by convincing her that he had a gun, too, don't make me shoot you, type thing. And she uh, basically stopped fighting at that point, and uh, he had uh, moved her away from the trail, and uh, actually around the side of the hill to where she couldn't be heard or seen, supposedly, and uh, tied her to a tree. He actually goes back and sees Mr. Blankenship collecting the items. Uh, he's hiding in the woods and sees him collecting the items. And he thinks that by the time he gets her down to the car, the police are going to be there. So he actually waits to almost dark to take her down to the car. That was another incident that, you know, may have, have changed the course of the whole thing. But if um, he would have called the police right away. Correct. When it was dark and the coast was clear. Totally unsecured, except just. I put a, a loop line around her neck, and 
just like a leash, like a dog's leash, and that's the only way she was secured. Okay. And I told her that I had a gun and that, you know, I was going to shoot her ass. Now, I didn't have a gun, but I had this baby pistol that looked like a gun. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was going to shoot her ass down. That bitterly cold night, Hilton would force Meredith and her dog into his van, a place he would hold her hostage until Friday, January 4th. Hilton would tie Meredith to a tree in a forest, close to that convenience store where he would later be arrested. He would leave her there and walk back to his van, where he made coffee. When he walked back to Meredith at the tree, she started crying, saying, I was afraid you weren't coming back. 61-year-old Gary Hilton had held Meredith captive in his van for three nights and four days of hell before bludgeoning her to death with a tire iron. And then he decapitated her. He had taken her into the woods, chained her to a tree, and left her and went back and, and made coffee and uh, had sat around his van like he was camping and uh, waited to make sure nobody was coming. When he realized nobody had, was coming, he went back carried her stuff, her phone, her cell phone, her, her, some of her clothes and things like that, uh, along with a tire arm. And he, uh, he walked into the woods and he said when he got to her, she was crying. And he asked her, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she said, uh, I was afraid that you had left me. And he chuckles at that point when he's telling me about it. And he, he says, <laughs> she thought I'd left her there. And so he tells her to lean up. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you go. I'm letting you go. He says, lean up and I'll unchain you. I'll, I'll unlock the padlock. See, I got the key. So she leans up to, to, to let him unchain her. And uh, he takes the tire arm, hits her in the head. Agents located her body based off of where he had described it. But yet they couldn't locate her, her head based off of how he described it. So he had to actually physically show us where it was located. And he walked us in there and uh, it was just very nonchalant. And, you know, that he had removed her clothing and removed her head uh, for DNA purposes and for forensics purposes. Um, the hair's a, a magnet for DNA and fiber evidence and things like that. Like we should be impressed with that. But once I had put him in a patrol car to send him back to uh, the county jail and I walked down to where the agents had located her body, that that was when it all hit me. That is when when I realized that that I had failed her and uh, that 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 was the first time that I had ever had that kind of emotion in any in any investigation that I had ever done. I'd never. I've never felt it stick to me like that did. And I, I, I lost it. I just, I sat on all fours crying for 10 minutes. Not at the crime scene, but in the woods. In the woods. Yeah. I was, I was up from it probably, you know, where the, where the crime scene specialist truck was, that's where I was. And I, did did I anybody just, see you or is this a, a by yourself kind of thing or? I think the crime scene, <laughs> I think the crime scene specialist saw me because I heard him walking up, walking up through the woods, and then I heard him turn around and go back. I think he understood. By the end of the month, Gary Hilton would be sentenced to life in prison for Meredith's murder. But the nightmare wasn't over. Investigators would find out that Meredith wasn't Gary Hilton's only victim. I was talking to him in multiples uh, or in plurals, like, you know, 
these people that you you take because we had already gotten information from Florida and North Carolina that they had very similar cases. And uh, even by the time we talked to him, we already had Mr. Bryant's DNA from North Carolina in his van. In October of 2007, an elderly married couple, John and Irene Bryant, were murdered on a trail in a national forest in North Carolina by Gary Hilton. Two months later in December, Cheryl Dunlap, a 46-year-old woman, was murdered while reading a book in a national forest in Florida. In April of 2011, Gary Hilton would be sentenced to death for Cheryl Dunlap's murder. In 2012, Gary Hilton admitted to murdering John and Irene Bryant. As part of a plea deal, he would be sentenced to two more life sentences without the possibility of parole. Gary Hilton is a suspect in five other unsolved murders, but there could be many more. During the investigation, they would find out that Gary Hilton, back in the 1980s, had written a screenplay about murdering women in the woods. He had written a screenplay, Gary Hilton, to... Oh, that was... Yeah, that was years before. That's I know! That's what... that. <laughs> That is what is uh, the FBI guys that, that watched the interview, the profilers that watched the interview with him, had, had basically said if they were going to profile him, they would call him a sexual sadist psychopath. One thing that I know and have learned about that is you don't become that at 61 years old. You become that in your late teens, early 20s. So if he is, in fact, that, there's honestly no telling how many people that he's done this to previously. In the span of two and a half months, he kills four people at 61 that we can prove. And you don't become that at that age. There's no doubt in my mind. And couple that with with the fact that, you know, he helps write a screenplay for a movie that is about kidnapping women from Atlanta, Georgia, and taking them to the mountains above Atlanta, Georgia, and releasing them and hunting them. Uh, And he refers to hunting people he refers to it when i when i interviewed him is that he didn't start hunting or he didn't you know when you're hunting people you don't you don't do this or that so it was it was very surreal to me to to think that that took place in the 80s that he helps write this screenplay and here it is 2008 so i honestly feel like and and i'm not alone in that i know but there is There's absolutely no telling how many people this guy's killed. The fact that they didn't get to Meredith in time, this is something that tears Clay apart, even to this day. You know, there were a couple of instances that, you know, we we were extremely close to saving Meredith, but we were unsuccessful. And, you know, I... I have struggled with that over over time, but I honestly believe that we have a time and a place that we're all going to go. So one great thing that she accomplished is she, she basically took a serial killer out of the public because if, if she hadn't have fought him, if she hadn't have done the things that she did, we wouldn't have caught him. He would still probably be out there today. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.